Our sermon passage this week, we'll be taking a break from our sermon series in the Gospel of John, which we'll pick up again with after Easter. And this week, we're going to look at a passage speaking about the triumphal entry of Jesus, what's celebrated at Palm Sunday, the time when he arrived into Jerusalem as king into the capital city there. Um, we'll be looking at Matthew uh, 21, verses 1 through 15. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what is uh, recorded for us here in Matthew 21, this instance of Jesus arriving into Jerusalem, the capital city, as king. I thank you that we get a glimpse here in these 15 verses of the kind of king that we serve, um, a picture of what it looks like for Jesus to be king. So I pray in these moments Move upon our heart that we might see his beauty and his majesty and love him all the more. And I pray all this in his matchless name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you uh, hopped on Interstate 95, um, I used to live in Orlando, you know, the the city of tourism, (laughs) Universal Studios, Disney World. But if you hop today on Interstate 95 and travel south, you get to Florida, Daytona Beach, and then you turn onto Interstate 4. Interstate 4 is a road that runs from Daytona Beach on the east side of Florida all the way down to Tampa. And right in the middle, right in the middle of Interstate 4 is Orlando. And as soon as you turn on Interstate 4 from I-95, you start to see a bunch of billboards. You see all these billboards for Disney World. And it'll be advertisements, not just with Mickey Mouse on them. It'll be advertisements for all the new attractions, the new rides. And as you're traveling on Interstate 4, which is literally taking you where? To what's called the happiest place on earth. The excitement can't help but build. This is literally a road to Disney World. Happiest place on earth, right? Well, did you know that that stretch of road, Interstate 4, that runs from Daytona Beach to Tampa, that leads to Disney World, is also 
the deadliest stretch of interstate in the entire United States. It's true. It is the deadliest stretch of road in the entire country. That means that the road that leads to the happiest place on earth, this road that is full of excitement as soon as you turn on it, filled with billboards that are getting you pumped up for this visit, this road is the deadliest stretch. Um, and for a lot of people, it doesn't lead to the happiest place on earth. It leads to loss. It leads to suffering. It leads to mourning. In our passage this morning, we see what looks like an incredible scene of joy. In, uh, in kind of an analogy, uh, we see Jesus turning on what looks like Interstate 4 to take him to Disney World. And it is. This is a scene of joy. Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem, the capital city of God's people. And Jesus, who up till now has traveled quite a bit throughout Israel, he has been to Jerusalem before, but he's mostly, uh, he's mostly been a quiet teacher. He's, he's moved around the countryside healing people. He's helped a lot of folks. But this is him arriving in Jerusalem in a very purposeful way to declare that he is king. And the people erupt because they know what's going on. They see what's happening. Jesus is arriving as king, and they celebrate. They cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They, they are moved to uh, toss their cloaks on the road and even cut uh, branches off of trees to lay in his pathway so that he'll, he'll, he'll walk on them. They are heralding his arrival as king. But because we know where this goes next, if we keep reading Matthew, we'll see... We know where this goes next. This is not a road that leads Jesus to the happiest place on earth. This arrival into Jerusalem is his steps toward what leads to his crucifixion, his uh, execution at the hands of the combined uh, religious and political leaders there in Jerusalem, his execution as a political rebel, as a blasphemer before God. This is Jesus' interstate four. So what I want to do this morning is to pause and to reflect on this reality and to see in these verses our king, Jesus, who does arrive as a king here and see uh, the beginning glimpses of what it means for him to be our king. What kind of king is he? So let's note a few interesting things in this passage. Look back over it. First, we're told where Jesus is coming from. He's with his disciples, and it says that they are approaching Jerusalem from Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And then it tells us that Jesus gives his disciples very specific instructions to get him something to ride into the city. And all of this is very purposeful. The location is purposeful. What he tells them to get, the donkey and her her foal, the the uh, the mama donkey and the baby donkey. He's very purposeful about location and what he's going to ride in. Why? Because it points back to very specific uh, images and symbols and stories in the Old Testament. Jesus is making a very purposeful entrance into Jerusalem, and he's picking images from his nation's past to make sure that everybody knows exactly what's going on. Now first, uh, arriving on a donkey it's, it's, a, uh, it's an act of peace. Notice, he's not a king coming in on a war horse. He doesn't deck himself out in armor. He doesn't ride an impressive steed. <laughs> this is Jesus riding a donkey. 
And not just a donkey. We see here it's a donkey and her colt. It's a mama donkey and a baby. This is the least threatening animal he could probably pick to ride into the city. Jesus is not arriving into Jerusalem with a sword in his hand. He's arriving as a, a prince of peace. He's arriving bringing peace. And this actually points back to one of the most significant things in the history of the Old Testament. You can flip back to the book of 1 Kings and read all about this. And um, if you want to read a book full of drama and intrigue, 1 Kings is, is, a, is, a, is a great one. It reads almost like a, um, like a Hamlet from Shakespeare or you know, some kind of novel of incredible political intrigue and people angling and striving to try to get a throne. And what it points back to specifically is Jesus is, is hearkening back to the death of David. David had been king over God's people and he had grown old and um, it was almost time, it was kind of clear he was going to be passing away soon. And he had already selected through God's instruction his heir. His heir was going to be his son Solomon. Solomon, the son of peace. And Solomon had been picked to be the heir of David, but not just in a political sense, in the, in the idea that he's going to take David's throne. He also was selected as the heir to the promise made to David. Now, there's a thread that runs through the entire Old Testament, and it's the promise of God that begins way back with Abraham. He tells Abraham that he's going to bless Abraham, make his descendants numerous, and that through Abraham, he is going to make... Uh, He's going to bless all the families of the earth. And that's back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and 17. Well, that thread of promise runs through. And in uh, 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. And he essentially says this, that promise I made to Abraham is going to be fulfilled specifically, David, through one of your descendants. One of your descendants is going to be king over my kingdom, and he will rule with justice and grace. And he will lead the people, not selfishly, but he will lead them in a way that cares for them well. And what God's doing is he's uh, making clear to this promise to David that he's keeping his promise to Abraham, that through a, a descendant of David, God's going to make a way for every family on earth to be blessed. And receive his grace through a king over God's kingdom. Okay, following the thread begins with Abraham, and this promise is kept, and it's made here uh, in 2 Samuel 7 to David. And Solomon has been identified as the heir. Not the one who's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, but he's the one through who the promise will continue, through Solomon's line. And so David's at the end of his life, and another one of his sons, a man named Adonijah, does not like this. He wants the throne. He wants the power. He doesn't want the promise. He wants the power. And so he begins to angle as David is, is starting to lose his wits a bit. And uh, he starts to angle. And he forms this coalition of uh, religious leaders. He forms this coalition of political military leaders. And they begin to come up with a plan. And what they say they're going to do is this. Adonijah says, I'm going to get chariots. I'm going to get these big, impressive horses. And I'm going to have an army, a, 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 a guard of 50 men to go out before me. And we are going to make a big public spectacle. And everybody's going to see it. And they're going to be awed. And they're going to say, Adonijah has to be king, right? He looks like a king. He's coming in in this impressive uh, steed on this war horse. This is our king. Well, David finds out about it. And there, on his deathbed, in essence, 
He tells Solomon to do this. Don't go out and get an army. Don't go out and get a big horse. Go get my donkey. The donkey that David had ridden throughout the city, his, uh, his, not his war horse, his donkey, unthreatening, the thing that, donkey, that uh, David rode through the city in this great time of peace. And he says, Solomon, you get on that. You get on that. And I want you to come through the city, go through the Kidron Valley, which is actually leads right through the Mount of Olives where Jesus is here, and ride into the city and go to the temple. And the high priest there, Zadok, he will crown you king. And so that's what Solomon does. And while Adonijah is making his plans with these false leaders who are trying to throw their power around to you know, usurp the throne, they're planning a coup, Solomon rides in humility on the back of this donkey into the city. And so that is what Jesus is doing here. He knows this story and he knows it well. And so when he tells his disciples, go find me a donkey and a colt, he's hearkening back to David. Find this uh, vehicle of peace, in a sense. Not a war horse, not a steed. Don't bring me a sword. Don't bring me armor. Don't find an army to go out ahead of me. Find me this donkey. And we're going to approach the city from the Mount of Olives. The same trail that Solomon would have taken to arrive as the rightful king, as the rightful heir of the promises of God. That's what Jesus is doing here. And the people, the crowd there, they recognize this. They know the story of Solomon. They know their Old Testament. And that's why they respond the way they do. As I said earlier, Jesus by this time has already made a name for himself. He's a teacher. He's a healer. He's a prophet. And so when they see him taking on, in a sense, this uh, mantle as king, they respond with great joy. And they take their coats off and they throw them in his pathway so he'll march on top of them. They cut trees down and they spread them before his path. But, you know, that, that seems really odd, I think, to me today. I can't think of an instance where I would want to take my coat off and, or, you know, cut a branch off a tree. But uh, maybe think about how at a, a wedding there's a flower girl that throws out, what, flower petals before the bride walks down the aisle. Same kind of things going on here. It's a way for the people to recognize that something spectacular is happening right now. Something incredible is happening. Our king is coming and he's coming in peace. And interestingly enough, palm trees in the ancient world, they were a sign of prosperity. They were a sign of goodness and peace. And they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is a word that uh, literally means something like praise because of salvation. It's a big woohoo. This is wonderful. Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David, Jesus. Hosanna in the highest heaven because it's something incredible has happened. God's king over his kingdom is arriving for us. And it's a scene of celebration. And where does Jesus go next? Notice where he goes straight to the temple. Straight to the temple. And what does he do? He cleanses it. He cleanses it of the money changers. He cleanses it of the, of the people uh, selling animals. Now, you may remember, if you heard the sermon last week, that Jesus has actually done this before. We looked at John chapter 2 last week, and that was at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, a couple years before Matthew 21 here. Jesus had done this before. He had gone into the temple. He had tossed out the money changers and the people who were taking advantage of people, which is what they were doing. They were making money on the back of people who were arriving in Jerusalem to worship God. And so here, Jesus walks into the temple, but this time, as a king entering the city, and he tosses them out. He tosses them out 
because he understood that what they had done is manipulated the grace of God and turned it into a money-making scheme, and that Jesus, as king, was not going to stand for it. He was not going to stand for it. As he says here, his house was going to be a house of prayer for all people, not a market, not a place to make money off of people, a place of welcome where God's grace goes out to those who come. And so he does that in verse 14. Notice what happens immediately after he cleanses the temple. It says, the blind and the lame came to him. Now what's implied here is that the blind and the lame had been pushed out of the temple. They had not been allowed access in. They had been pushed out for the market. And why could they be pushed out? Because they didn't have a voice. They weren't important enough to make a racket that anyone would care enough, right? They were on the fringes. But what Jesus does is he cleanses the temple and the blind and the lame, they know immediately. Our king has arrived for us. He's pushed out those who pushed us away and we can go to him. And they do, they come to him. And notice in in verse 15, the response here. So Jesus has done all this. He's arrived as king. He's gone to the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He's he's, uh, welcomed in those who are blind and lame, those who have been pushed off, and even children who are declaring his praises. This is an incredible scene. But what's the response of the leaders there? Verse 15, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things they did right before their eyes. And the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. What happened? They were indignant. They were indignant. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, of all people, the professional religious folks, of all people who should have seen exactly what was going on and knew that what's going on in Jesus is God breaking into our world. This is God keeping his promises that he made to our ancestors. They should have responded with incredible joy. They were the most qualified, in a sense, to see the signs and know exactly what was happening. But when they see people being freed of the oppressive economic system that had built up at the temple, when they see people uh, being welcomed in to receive the grace of God, when they see people and even children responding in joy, they're furious. They are furious, indignant. Why? Why? Because they're going to lose their power. They understand that the arrival of God in the midst messes with their own positions messes with their own power. And that leads them to begin to manipulate the situation. It leads them to begin to um, uh, come up with a plan, which eventually leads to them approaching Judas, who betrays Jesus. And they pay Judas off to betray Jesus to them so they can arrest him on trumped-up charges, put him under a sham of a trial, and execute him as a rebel. Now, where all this leads next is a whirlwind few days. The pathway that Jesus takes here as king doesn't lead to a palace. It doesn't lead to him being crowned as the kind of king that people want. Though he is crowned with a crown of thorns, it leads ultimately to his rejection. And not just by the leaders who are furious and indignant here. His rejection by the very crowd that is declaring his praises. The excitement of Palm Sunday turns to disappointment as the religious and political leaders combine to plot against Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't turn out to be the kind of king they want, the kind of king who marches in and tosses out 
the Roman government, the kind of king who marches in and tells them that he hates all the people they hate, when he doesn't turn into the kind of king who just confirms them in everything they want to do already, when he doesn't turn into the kind of king that they want, when he turns into a king who begins to give grace to people they don't want to receive grace, when he turns into the kind of king that inconveniences them, calling them to a deeper love of God and others, they turn against him. And the excitement of Palm Sunday becomes the betrayal of Thursday. It becomes the crucifixion of Friday and the darkness of Jesus in the tomb on Saturday. That's where this pathway leads. And it's shocking, right? It's shocking. Think about that in the span of just a handful of days. It's shocking to me. It was probably shocking to the crowd and the disciples who had to be wonder had to be wondering what was going on here. But there's one person in the story that this turn was not shocking to. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Here's the marvel of all marvels. Consider this, Jesus, as our king. He knew exactly, exactly where this road was going. He knew exactly where this road was going, that it wasn't leading to him in a palace. It wasn't leading him into uh, taking uh, the throne in the sense that all the people would have thought a king taking the throne. He knew He knew that this led to his cross, to his suffering, to his death. And he had already told his disciples. We can read earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, he's told them numerous times, but they they couldn't get their minds around it. They refused to believe it. But Jesus knew the kind of king that he wanted to be for his people. He knew the kind of king that we need him to be. And he knew that he was going to, as our king, to bring us the grace that we desperately need. He knew that he was going to face something much bigger, even than the injustice of the religious leaders and the political leaders angling against a drunk on their own power. He knew that he was going to face something even bigger and more painful than the excruciating physical death that he experienced on the cross. He knew he was going to be abandoned Abandoned by his friends, betrayed by his friends, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by the crowd, and even, in a sense, abandoned by God, his Father. He knew that he was going to be mocked and shamed and spit upon and condemned. He knew he was going to be left and killed. And he knew he was going to experience the absolute hell of God's just judgment against sin. And he knew that his physical death on the, on the cross would also be, in a, spiritual, in a sense, a spiritual death of facing God's wrath against sin. And this is a mass mystery that we cannot fathom. But Jesus knew where this road was taking him, but he took it all the same. He knew where this is going and he did not turn away. Why? Because of this, because of his incredible love for us. He offered himself willingly as our king. Not the kind of king Adonijah wanted to be in the Old Testament, decked out in physical power and impressive strength. Not even the kind of king that Solomon would be, decked out in wealth and in the world admiring him for his wisdom. No, he knew the kind of king that he needed to be to bring us the grace he wants to bring us meant that he was going to have to face this. 
that the only way for him to defeat our greatest enemy of sin, death, and the grave is for him to undergo it on our behalf. And that's what he does. That's what he takes on in his crucifixion. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. That he willingly faced the wrath of God against our sin, the just wrath of God, so that we don't have to. And that at the cross, the wrath of God against our sin is exhausted. And there remains no more wrath for those of us who come to Jesus in faith. What remains for us is grace upon grace upon grace. Here is King Jesus. A grace that will run to the deepest and most difficult parts of who we are to bring us new life. A grace that will not leave us in the mess we're in, but a grace that joins us in our mess to defeat it and to lift us up to Him. Here is King Jesus, not only crucified on Friday, but as we'll celebrate next week on Easter. King Jesus, victorious in His resurrection over everything that stands between Him and His intentions for us. Everything that stands between Him and His love for us overcome, even death. That's our King. That's our King. And so we can say this morning, not like the crowd here who had mistaken ideas that we were trying to project on Jesus, and that's a big danger for us too, right? We want to serve a God made in our own image. We want to think that Jesus just dislikes who we dislike, and he won't give grace to people we don't want him to give grace to, that Jesus won't inconvenience us. But we can stand like the crowd and say, Hosanna to the Son of David, and know that salvation has come through Him, a salvation deeper than we can understand, a salvation that sets us free from everything that hinders us and holds us down, and that this, our King Jesus, is a King worth celebrating. So let's do that together. Not by cutting trees, uh, branches off of trees, not by taking your jacket off and throwing it on the floor, but by coming to Him to receive life, forgiveness, hope, transformation to receive 